Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, December 6th, 2020. Right. Everybody hates 2020. Yeah, I know, but we only have a few weeks left. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's short. Goodbye and good riddance. Anyway, happy birthday, Bryce, to my brother, Bryce. Yes, happy birthday, Bryce. Uh, his birthday was yesterday, and uh, Armand's birthday is coming up. That's right. Happy birthday, Armand. So we got a lot of birthdays this week, and Hanukkah is coming up. Coming up next week. Well, okay. a few days from now. The 10th? Yeah, <laughs> yes. So uh, I'm very excited. I'm expecting at least eight gifts. Yeah, at least. Uh, so I hope you're ready. Yeah. It's really your holiday. So I, I didn't realize you I didn't realize up to the nine. I didn't realize you were looking for Hanukkah gifts. There was a new recipe for not latkes like yeah. in the New York Times this week. Okay. Well, maybe it's not this. Maybe it's coming up. I saw it online. How many recipes for latkes can there well, be? Well, here's the deal. What? <laughs> What's the deal, honey? No eggs. No onion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a whole new methodology. And... Um, Yes, this reminds me. The claim me. is they're fabulous yeah. and a far superior methodology. Really? Yeah, this reminds me of when my mother was getting on in years and she tried to convince us the way to make latkes was to use the side of I the grater. That every year. It's, that, you know, some people do that. Okay? Reduces potatoes to potato juice. I mean, it, it was. But some like a finer texture. Oh, boy. Not the shredded texture that. Our I don't family know. happens I, to, you know, I I agree. We, we love to criticize the way our parents do things. Yeah. But uh, that was, that that's a very subjective criticism. All right. She's not wrong. She All was right. not wrong. Okay. All right. I'm glad you're sticking up for my mom. It was just her way. Okay. I didn't stick up for her at the time. No, of course not. I said, who <laughs> would do that? Exactly. How do you think I got Are to this point me? of view? Are you kidding You me? said the woman's crazy. The woman's crazy. Well, that She's was a all... Loon. Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. Uh, right. know, I'm glad you see it with a great deal of perspective now. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> moving right along. All right. So we start in here. Start in. Yeah, we've been uh, watching uh, more. We're branching on the out. Small screen. We're bra- we we shelled out money last night. We paid to see David Copperfield. Yes. A movie that After is After getting a, that fabulous freebie, Mank. Well, well let's go back. To, when, I, when we finish Mank, when I finish Mank, I'll review Mank. But right. let's, let's deal right now with David Copperfield. Note, which, listeners, when he finishes Mank. Exactly. Right. Somebody else is not up for it. But in any event, David Copperfield came out a few months ago with one of those mixed release situations. It was in theaters. Such well, it's as not it called is. David Copperfield. What, what is it called exactly? I think it's called A Personal History. Yeah, okay. So David it's David Copperfield. Copperfield. Well, I, I just say that because if you Google David Copperfield, okay. you don't necessarily come up with that movie. I think you will. But um, in any I'm event... I'm only speaking from experience, yes. dear. Can, I, can, I, can we get to the gist of it? We paid $5 to see a movie on uh, through Amazon, and it was worth it. It was good. Wasn't it? Yes. I would. It, it's kind of, of course, it's based on the Charles Dickens novel. Um, and uh, it's directed by Armando Iannucci, who's kind of an interesting guy. Uh, he, he directed Veep, uh, which we don't watch. But we, we saw In the Loop was one of his films. It's one of the funniest movies I've seen in my entire life. Yeah. Uh, Death of Stalin. Death of Stalin was not one of the funniest movies I've seen in my entire life. It wasn't bad. It was interesting. It was medium. And uh, (laughs) stars uh, Dev Patel and uh, Tilda Swinton, who's very good, Hugh Laurie, uh, Peter Capaldi, uh, Ben Wishaw. It is, uh, how would you describe, I'll let you go first. What's your take on it? 
Well, it was it was kind of it was a quirky, yeah. you know, personal vision of uh, Dickens, you know, life story, his interpretation of his life. Well, it's a, it's a Dickens life, really. It's a lot of it's based on things he went through. Oh, I yes. didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, he had kind of a tough life. All right. Well, it's it's uh, it's you know it's very it's a very interesting though, and it's all over. It's about it's in London and Victorian England, and you know when you say a tough life, he's working in a, a terrible factory at a very uh, young yeah, age. Yeah, mean and, uh, and cruel stepfather right, and tough, uh, horrific bosses. Right. You know, poverty, starvation, right. class system, injury, class system yeah. in London that he has to work his way through. He's bouncing around. He's either a gentleman or he's not. Uh, and, uh, you know, romantic confusion. But, and through it all, though, it, it's sort of a picaresque tale. It, 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 you know, it, it never quite seems like a serious life story of anybody because it's over-the-top characterizations right, of all right, these right, folks. Right. And at certain points, and this is the amazing thing about the movie, I kept thinking this movie's going off the rails and I'm going to lose interest because every once in a while you'd see a scene where the characters were so extreme, such caricatures that you thought it was one of these fancy Alice in Wonderland productions in which, you know, next thing they're going to pull out the hookah and we're not, we're not going to know what the heck's going on. But uh, it somehow stayed tethered to the action and to the narrative. And it was extremely literary at the same time because the magic of it in terms of David Copperfield's process as an author, was he kept writing down phrases that people used? David Copperfield's process. Yeah. Yes, because he was. You mean you mean Charles Dickens? No, process? I mean that's oh. taking the character seriously because oh, okay. he is an seriously. he's an author. Okay. He's an author at the end of it. That's the right. arc, and his process is to write down slavishly the odd turns of phrase he hears from people in everyday life. And you can imagine, of course, as you're suggesting, that's what Dickens did also, and that brings so much to the film. And so much of the story. Uh, so it's not clear how it works. It's like alchemy. But it does, <laughs> It does. you hang with it. And I thought it was very satisfying, very enjoyable. It's really good movie. not only is it picaresque, it's picturesque. Yes, that's for it's sure. A, it's an attractive movie. And it's also cast uh, with great diversity, with right. little regard for, you know, um, the whiteness of the original story. Sure, so people of all races and all... Uh, which is fun. Well, which is quite fun. Yeah, it works perfectly fine. Works perfectly yeah. well. Uh, if anything, it adds something. So, uh, give it a good review. You know, it's funny. You're in the mo- mind of Dickens. I think I know I am, and I know the Times is because it is the season. People are writing about a Christmas Carol, and the Times has an article. It was kind of an interesting slant on it. I mean, the Christmas Carol is the story of the season, if you will. Again, uh, obviously Dickens, uh, but it and, turns and out the depiction of it. We talked about this last year. It really uh, defines, creates Christmas, right, for us, right. Uh, it's the seminal narrative the US, of Christmas, right? Know, our vision of uh, you know the the perfect Christmas is right. based on what's going on in uh, Dickens, Dickens' mind. It is the governing narrative this side of the actual religious narrative, yeah. and uh, the thing about it is that what I didn't fully appreciate was while while we're all highly aware of productions of The Christmas Carol, adaptations of the book into a play, which play at small theaters all over the place, sometimes in musical versions, sometimes not. Um, What I didn't fully appreciate until I read the Times article was that these productions are the lifeblood 
of many of these nonprofit theaters. Or as another, as one of the theater owners said, you know something, we're going to sell out for Christmas Carol, and that's why, you know, for, for 1,500 seats, and that's why in January we can put on Uncle Vanya with 50 people in the theater, mm-hmm. because uh, that's what makes it go. And it's so important to the theater, uh, to the small-time theaters. And of course, in the pandemic, they can't do these productions. But the Times article was about creative ways to do it, uh, doing it online, doing it um, all sorts of ways, in parking lots, doing audio versions. I will tell you my favorite version, which happens to be an audio version, obviously not developed in the pandemic, was Patrick Stewart's recording of Christmas Carol, yeah. which you've heard me talk about, which I've listened to for several years now, which is just fantastic. I can't imagine anything better than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've certainly seen some wonderful productions at local theaters of Christmas Carol. It's it's a great, and, I, and I've read it recently, and it's a great, it, it's brilliant. It's yeah. brilliant. But uh, it's uh, the inability to put on the Christmas carols really going to hurt these nonprofit theaters. All right. Well, I'm sad to hear that. Yeah. Well. But moving right along here, in the New York Times yes. this weekend, there was a huge book review section. Right. Uh, with the idea that we're all running out to buy books uh, as uh, Christmas gifts, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, so we have many books to discuss. Uh including A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order uh, by Judith Flanders. Now, we've mentioned Ju- Judith Flanders. We mention her every uh, you know year or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year or the year before, she had Christmas, a biography, the story of Christmas, okay? And um, written, written books about uh, Victorian homes. So, you know, she... Um, uh, is an is a fun read, and here she's taking on um, organization how how we organize by alphabet. I never thought about that. I never thought. I just thought uh, you know, it's it's just there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's you know when I think of uh, how to you know sort of sort anything. It's alphabetical. One of my first ones is alphabetical. Well, it's the the default system. And um, so anyway, but. Apparently, it wasn't always there, and uh, what made so she goes through the whole history back to Egypt thousands of years ago, um, and uh, where uh, you know um, the alphabet uh, was born, uh, so to speak, and uh, um, so it, it's I I just enjoy the idea of thinking of it as kind of uh, a deliberate way of putting things together. But there's a disregard of any hierarchy or, right. you know, level of importance or but that's but that's But that's the magic of it. It's yeah. arbitrary. And that way you can avoid all debates and all disputes over who goes first. Because otherwise you would think that's based on importance or significance. But if you do an alphabetical order, it's yeah. neutral. And if we didn't have this... Yeah. She points out we would just have big piles of useless knowledge, right. you know, like just like, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to my mom who has all these family letters and mementos and um, photographs. And she's saying, how do I organize these? Well, when you say yeah. you didn't have it, it's not genius to figure it out. But having said that, I think that article suggested it was resisted at some point. Yes. Uh, Coleridge, uh, for example, thought the idea of... An encyclopedia, that mm-hmm. is a compendium of all knowledge mm-hmm. at, at that time, well, 
it was ridiculous to put that in alphabetical order mm-hmm. because it just again it it, it re- kind of randomizes everything. You know, things are. Um, uh, he saw it as a huge unconnected miscellany in an arrangement determined by the accident of initial letters. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, there was that. But in the end, it turns out to be a very useful tool. So I think it might be interesting uh, mm-hmm. to read. She also goes into a few things like uh, the invention of index cards, roll-top desks, and, uh, you know, um, children's uh, primers and, you know, all kinds of sort of ancillary uh, items, mm-hmm. which might be fun to read about. Right. So, you know, I don't know if this is one of these books uh, that you read every single word, mm-hmm. but I think you could get um, some fun okay. ideas. Well, another book that was reviewed this week, both by the Times and the Journal, was a Singular Sensation by Michael Riedel. And Michael Riedel, uh, who's uh, been a theater writer for a long time, he wrote for a few years for the Daily News, then 22 years at the Post. Now he's does the morning show at WOR, uh, and uh, because the post is no more in this area. But in fact, uh, he knows a lot of theater gossip. That's his thing. And his previous book was Razzle Dazzle, which was very much about the Broadway developments that took place over the 70s and 80s. And uh, it was pretty good, pretty good. It's kind of, or I think as the journal described, it's sort of a flash bulb version of events. And that's the did way you he read that? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. And uh, then you have this now, Singular Sensation. and uh, what's taking Singular from, Sensation. Goes so that, the of night. course, is a reference to... Chorus Line. Right. But it's post-chorus line. It's about what happens post-chorus line. Okay. And uh, it starts with the British invasion and goes on from there. And it's, it's, it's a mix of gossip and highlights. Of, By British invasion. Yes. You mean... Andrew Lloyd Webber. Okay. And, you know, he's got some mean things to say about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Or what else? What's the right word? Snippy things, gossipy things. You know how snarky, remarks. snarky, snarky. <laughs> you know how he he didn't have the nerve to tell Patty Lapone in person that Glenn Close was going to play the main part in Sunset Boulevard in New York. Not you know, that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, she was playing it in uh, London. Yeah, Patty Lapone. And uh, when it transferred to New York, yeah, he, picked, he just left her out. He left her and out. went for Glenn Close. Yes. How do you like that? Yeah. So as he put it. Uh, this is from the book. The feud between Patti Lapone and Andrew Lloyd Webber gripped the theater world for years to come. And the reviewer says that sentence alone constitutes proof of just how provincial and hermetic the theater world is. Uh, in any event, one funny thing that I thought, oh, one interesting thing for us, he talks about, uh, um, you know, how hard it is to get a, a Broadway hit in a, a musical, all the risk. And he focuses uh, a lot on Chicago, which he notes was presented in a concert format in 1996 in Encores, where every number brought down the house. And, of course, we saw it in Encores. And, yes. I, and I can tell you, every number brought, brought down, down the house. house. And, it was, and they said it was still a struggle to find a producer to put it on Broadway. Any event, um, it, it seems like it's a good book. It's, you know, it's a somewhat superficial book, but that's the nature of it. Uh, you know, again, he's got the gossip end of things, the personality stuff. He knows people. So, you know, it's a light book. If you want a, a more serious book, according to the, uh, on theater, uh, according to the Times, there is a memoir or what's called not really a memoir by uh, Andre Gregory. Um and, of course, Andre, uh, of my dinner with Andre, we spoke about a week or two ago, maybe two weeks ago. And uh, 
he was a great uh, he had something called the Manhattan Project. He was a great independent. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great theater group. Yeah. He was a great uh, independent producer slash director with that group. Uh, It was a highly experimental and highly successful downtown theater group. And then he's a highly colorful guy. He eventually that group kind of split up and had its troubles as groups inevitably do. And he went on a spiritual quest. He left his family. There are all kinds of things you could say about Andre Gregory. Uh, and some of them he says himself in his own description in well, the review. Well, okay, so again, the book is This Is Not My Memoir. Right. And it's by Andre Gregory and Todd London. Right, but there's no explanation of what that means. Of, of who Todd London really is or anything. Yeah. But he does, you know, um, so he's a pretty esoteric guy. So it yes. might be... A slog. Uh, I, it doesn't it sound like to read. it doesn't sound like it's a the, slog. Some of the stories, his life is pretty interesting. Right. His, his parents were Russian Jews who uh, basically who came to the U.S. emigrated to the U.S. once, one step ahead of, not, of well, Nazis. Well, there is. I'm going to ask yeah. you to tell that great story about his parents in a second. But I, <laughs> let me let me respond yeah. to your point about this slog. I I do get your point because it's much easier to pick up Riedel's book than Andre Gregory's book. Uh, even in my own mind, I'm thinking about it, but. Uh, he is a great speaker. And what you see from my dinner with Andre, he's a captivating speaker. So I'm, I'm sure whatever he talks about, he talks about in a compelling way. But, but you should tell that story. Well, he said, my parents were very interesting people. Right. But not, uh, and, and they were great survivors, but not such great parents. Right. And they really... Well, they were survivors they really, of the Holocaust. Um, well, they, I think they escaped without... Right. Uh, before the Holocaust. Right, before the Holocaust. Yeah, they weren't yes, right. um, incarcerated or anything. But um, anyway, they um, they left the uh, um, child-rearing to the nanny, okay? And so much so that uh, there's this great story of uh, his mother, Andre Gregory's mother, um, coming upon uh, a governess and a baby in a carriage, and she stops and says, oh, what a lovely baby. And the governess turns to her and says, but madame, that is your baby. Yeah. Uh, so so that's a little a, detached. That is a great story. Well, it's funny. So by total coincidence, there was an obituary in the Times this past week of Jan Myrdal, a Swedish, Swedish author and provocateur who has a strong political philosophy and wrote a couple of interesting books, but the way he came to prominence is very odd. As, as I mentioned, he's Swedish. And what's most significant in, in this connection is his parentage. His parents were Gunnar and Alva Myrdal. And the amazing thing is they both won Nobel Prizes, which is unbelievable. Gunnar won the Nobel, was an economist, won a Nobel Prize that he shared in 1974 with Friedrich von Hayek. And um, uh, Alva Myrdal, who was a, a cabinet minister and, and Swedish ambassador to India, split the 1982 Nobel Peace Prize for her work promoting nuclear disarmament. So you can't, can't imagine a more honored couple than these two Nobel Prize winners in Sweden. And yet in 1982, in the midst of uh, all this Nobel Prize giving, he, this fellow, uh, Jan Myrdal, wrote a book called Childhood to talk about the abysmal parentage that he experienced. Then. And a terrible experience he had growing up and how indifferent his so parents were. So he had these were. super 
famous parents, right? right? <laughs> Everybody in Sweden knows them. Yeah. And he writes a book saying they were terrible. Parents. I mean, I can't imagine. It's not that big a country. But they each won the Nobel Prize. You can't. How 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 huge must they have been in the estimation of the British people? I think that's a people? great human story. Yeah. Though. I mean, not everybody is going to be a great parent, and not everybody's going to be a Nobel Prize winner, and uh, you, it's not, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't have to be both. I mean, we have this sort of American right. fantasy that the good guy is the smart guy, yeah, right. and that's the best well, guy. Yeah, but, but it's got to be mean, complicated. It's got to be complicated. There, there are always issues. There are issues. Right. You know? but, but, but but let me just add something to it. So his, his sister is... Uh, Cicely Bach is an extremely well-known philosopher who's married to Derek Bach, who was the uh, president of Harvard and also was a great economist. Uh, she doesn't have the same complaints that he does. So, so if I, I, only I, we had had terrible parents. Uh, yeah. Right? We'd be that well, much we'd better. We'd probably be the, you know. <laughs> I don't even want to speculate. as these guys. That's, that's right. So that's, uh, yeah. This is, so, so I'm just saying this because now for Zeke and Noel, the pressure is off. Okay. The pressure is you off. Can, you can. The worse uh, they yeah. are, the bigger things we can look for from Pepper. Yeah. yeah that's right. No, no, I, no, I shouldn't say that. That's that's being stupid. But um, it is. It, yeah. it, it is. But the <laughs> the point is that yeah. uh, you don't have to be. You know, smart people are not necessarily great parents. You just have to love your children. Right. Okay. All right. So in any event, I took you off track, though. You were going to talk about you oh, know, I got another a book. More books. You, well, um, you got a James yeah. Beard book, I know. Well, there's James Beard, and yeah. that book is called The Man Who Ate Too Much. Mm -hmm. And it's written by John Birdsall, yeah. a professional cook and restaurant critic. And apparently it's very well written. I mean, there have been um, uh, biographies of James Beard uh, before, mm -hmm. and I've read at least one. Yeah. And he was a pretty problematic guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he had... Many issues, including he ate too much. Well, he was about that's okay. Six three, weighed three hundred pounds. Right, he had significant health issues okay. because of his weight, but he also had you know just a lot of challenges with mm. um, coming to grips with uh, his sexuality, socially, etc. Mm. And um, uh, it, uh, but very sort of charming, interesting guy who um, kind of promoted American cuisine. I mean, he was cooking at a time when uh, the idea was it had to be French. Mm -hmm. You know, French cooking is great cooking. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really embraced the, um, you know, the real, I, I don't know, the real foods, foods of America. Mm -hmm. And not in a, um, uh, I, I don't know, uh, not in a kitschy way. I mean, he was, uh, he, you know, helped give birth to this whole, whole idea of... Uh, um, local food, uh, etc., because he was, you know, embracing the American taste. He, he was from the West Coast originally, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, just uh, so anyway. I think it's a, a pretty interesting story. I don't think it's necessarily the happiest story. Okay, um, uh, but um, another book. Uh, like I said, I got a whole list here. Another. There's also a new biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh -huh. Uh, by David McAllis that sounds, you know, I mean, again, there's a zillion biographies of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, but wow, another just complex, interesting person. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that would probably I'm sorry, who's, the, who's the author of that? David McAllis. Okay. Or Mike, Mike, Michaelis. 
Michaelis, M I C H E L I S. But so so that, you know, even though, again, I've read the biographies of her before, mm-hmm. might be interesting. I mean, wow, what a um, interesting sort of partnership between her and FDR. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just all the undercurrents of uh, their, um, not only their just tremendous. Uh, a sense of social responsibility, but all you know, their personal lives were, were kind of complex and interesting as well. So that would be fun if you like uh, nonfiction. Um, then uh, there was an article. This is not a book. This was this was an article about good old John Adams, our first one-term president. Mm-hmm. Okay, he became president after uh, George, Washington. George Washington. I knew that. Yes, stepped down. Okay. And, uh, you know, um, the, you know, not the most imposing figure after Washington, you got to say. You know, he was kind of short and rotund. Right. Um, and, and he did get some mockery for it. Um, but uh, he was defeated. This is a quote from the article. He was defeated by Thomas Jefferson um, after four years in a fraught election that exposed deep internal rifts among Americans, racial anxieties, and more than a little skulldudgery. Mm. Uh, and uh, so anyway, he was not happy to be uh, deposed, mm. uh, shall we say. And, you know, there was some, uh, you know, intimation uh, that, uh, you know, electoral votes were, um, the process, uh, something about the electoral votes were manipulated right. to uh, help uh, favor um, Jefferson, Jefferson etc. Right. Um, so he leaves town. He does not go to the inauguration. He leaves town on inauguration day, 4 a.m. Wow. He leaves a little note um, saying that, uh, among other things, he has left behind the seven horses that actually belonged to the U.S. Uh, and taken everything else. He had just moved into the White House in November. Okay, really? The White House had just been finished. The paint was still drying. Okay. okay. And, um, uh, you know, he was out. Now, and part of his problem, this article says, is nobody knew what an ex-president was supposed to do. Um, and... Uh, uh, so he, you know, he does whatever all the ex-presidents had done up to that point. That is farm, take right. care of his farm. He right. Goes up to uh, uh, Massachusetts. Um, but and uh, he and Jefferson, who were buddies during the infancy uh, of uh, the revolution, etc., um, uh, don't speak for years. And then finally, actually, um, he. Um, John Adams writes to Jefferson and sends him a couple of his son's book books, you know, mm-hmm. Qu- John Quincy John Quinn, Adams, yeah, yeah. yeah, and uh, and they then have a like a fourteen year correspondence. It's pretty f- famous, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they both die on the same day, the fiftieth anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. That's amazing. I, I guess it's July fourth. July fourth, yeah, I, yeah. That's bizarre. I mean, I remember reading about that, 1826. Uh, that is weird. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, so there you have it. All right. Um, there have been these rifts before, and, uh, you know. All right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, going back to television, no, no, no show in recent memory, at least in my mission memory, has gotten as much coverage. Talk about the PR team as uh, Queen's Gambit. Now, there happened to be an article, which I think is, I don't know if it's related or not, you'll have to tell me. How to make your own chess set? 
in the Times? Did they mention the Queen's Gambit in the article? Or? Thanks to the success of the Netflix show, <laughs> okay, The Queen's Gambit, yeah. chess sets are flying off the shelves. We have a fabulous Simpson family chess set. Did Do you we? remember that? No, yes. I don't remember. Yes, that was Whatever it was, gift. it was not I enough to get children. the kids to play chess. Wait a minute, I'll run into the next room and go get it. Oh, great. Uh, but uh, anyway, so this is... This is actually a fun article about making your own. Yeah. And there are three levels you can uh, go to. One is the very basic. Uh, that is a paper chess set. Mm-hmm. And you basically, you, you need four pieces of paper, right. scissors, and a computer printer. Okay. And you print these things out and, and cut out the little pieces out of the four pe- pieces of paper. Okay. Intermediate is a cardboard chess set mm-hmm. all right so that's a little bit harder and takes more equipment um yeah and uh but the most fun one i think is the advanced and that is an origami chess set oh that sounds right because you have some uh, depth to the pieces so you can go to the they said there are many uh, tutorial videos on youtube um, showing you how to make the little origami pieces. Yeah. And they recommend Origami Chess, Cats versus Dogs by Roman Diaz. Explains how to construct an origami chess set themed oh, to cats Oh, see, and I dogs. thought they were going to use origami to make Simpsons characters. So that would be much more interesting, but I guess not. I guess it's different. You didn't think that. No, I didn't you think that. You just wanted to say that. I just but, uh, <laughs> yes. I do think that that would be right. kind of cute, and but not, is, not especially durable. Yeah, there isn't the umpteenth article about the series itself in the Times Magazine called Her Move uh, by a person named Karina Chicano. And, uh, you know, why are we watching The Queen's Gambit? And uh, she concludes, uh, drawing on her own feelings largely, um, that uh, it's a remarkable story because it's a story of a woman succeeding in a difficult and trying environment against all odds. Although she says what's ultimately disappointing is it's a fantasy. We all know that that's, that's not reality, but that's what makes it compelling. Um, you know, to each his own. Uh, that's not what makes it compelling to me. Uh, what makes it compelling to you? Well, and I should say, I think I like the series more than you do, but I'm not uh, that much more advanced in my appreciation of uh, women's well, struggles you, than you. Well, you actually... Like chess. Yeah, but that's not it. You know what I think? And yeah, and that's a lot of it. There's yeah. a lot of watching of chess moves yeah. in it. But they're so, fast. they're so I, fast. I know a lot of people are um, charmed by it. There's fashion. Yeah. Okay, there's the retro aspect. Right. The the scenes, you're really back in time, this mid-century But I, I think that's a, lot of, that's a lot of appealing to me. You know the series that I think is most similar to? And this one Mrs. Comes, Maisel. How did you know that? Because I've known you a long time. <laughs> That's exactly right. This woman's comparing it to all these very serious shows and books about uh, women advancing and succeeding in tough environments and whatever. And I'm saying that's not what the show is. It's Mrs. Maisel. Except that here's the problem, Dan. What? This is sort of my problem. I mean, to some extent, it's fun and interesting and, and you're cheering for her. Yeah. But the drugs and alcohol. All right. Is kind of a downer. It is. But we haven't, first of all, um, so, I should say we haven't seen the end of it. Some people were wondering. And we're four or five episodes in. And the drugs or alcohol is a downer, but it's more of the struggle. And, it's her and, story. You know, it's not all it's, sunshine. It's cute that she has nice clothes and uh, she re- redecorates the house. And, the, and But to see her alone as a kid. Yeah. 
as a teenager. It's, it's certainly more harsh than Mrs. Maisel. Um, drinking I, herself drunk. Yeah, is just, it's but that's okay. So that's for me not a laugh a minute. All right, it's it, and it's not supposed to be a laugh a minute, but it has a lot of similarities to Mrs. Maisel. All the retro stuff you're talking about, and of course the woman succeeding in a man's world, but just anybody succeeding and seeing them succeed and seeing them being single-minded and by virtue of their own wits surviving and moving on. So, you know, it's an appealing story. That's all. I, I don't, to me, it's, it's not very deep television or anything like that. Uh, but it, it's fun. Mrs. Maisel, you got it. You do know me. All right, so there was this uh, article that I feel I have to comment on, though I'm not sure what to say because I don't understand the article because it doesn't make any sense. But... I don't want to dwell on that, but I have to comment. Let me explain. There's an article called Reading Civil Lawsuits by a person named Tarpley Hitt, uh, who apparently is a writer at the Daily Beast and uh, apparently now writes once in a while for the New York Times. And it's, the article says, I, I don't want to read any part of it because uh, I, I, there's nothing that's really cogent. But, but the thought is, I think, that you can don't get, worry about the thought. Tell what the what it is first. It's a he, it's an article. It's called "Reading Civil Lawsuits." He, this he person ends up googling a bunch of different lawsuits. A bunch of the lawsuits, and, and he's but, kind of amused. Amused by but, these different lawsuits. But he seems that to come up with. He seems to conclude that it's telling him something about something. I, I can explain that to you in a minute. Give some of the lawsuits. Okay. Well, there only mentions two or three. He starts with a, a lawsuit about this uh, fellow who has a place called Beers. Uh, are us. The no, old, no, it's no, a nightclub called. That's called, his company. That's he calls he calls something. Which his he, bar is called Velvet Elvis. Exactly. So he gets sued by the people of the Elvis estate because for copyright infringement. Copyright copyright yeah. infringement. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and he writes about that dispute. Uh, but it's not sure to me why it matters. But he certainly writes about. And it. And then he writes about other crazy disputes, including one. That you were involved <laughs> right. in. So here's the funny thing about it. You say crazy disputes. I don't know what he's, his point is. He finds out, apparently, that by using Google, you can tap into judicial records. And he's seeing this, I think I'm fairly reading it, as a window into something, into the law, into, as no, he puts it, trial lawyer. He, he says trial lawyers and storyteller, are storytellers and competitive ones at that. And he's pulling out purple prose. From two or three lawsuits. Now, there are 50 zillion lawsuits he might have drawn this from. They're all accessible by Google. He mentions three, and one of the three is one that I litigated. So I can't ignore it. Debbie does Dallas. So it's a case. So you won't tell that story because that is a whole podcast. No, but I will. Let me just say this. It's a lawsuit in which the, what he says. Let me just read what he says. He says, in the late 1970s, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders sued the Pussycat Cinema, a porn outfit, over its recent flick, Debbie Does Dallas, quote, a gross and revolting sex film whose plot, to the extent that there is one, involves a cheerleader at a fictional high school, Debbie, who has been selected to become a Texas cowgirl. That quote is what gets that what he focused on as the interesting, colorful prose about. And did you write that? Well, here's the interesting thing is <laughs> uh, I didn't write it. Uh, let me just say two things about it. You're right. I don't want to go into it. I will just say it was part of the. I don't want to take credit for taking the you whole lawsuit. You represented the cheerleaders. Represented not, the cheerleaders. Not, and not I was on a legal team. team that was headed by the great Asa Roundtree. Okay? Yeah, yeah. I'll say that. Uh, but here's the thing. This fellow doesn't seem to distinguish between 
uh, briefs and complaints written by lawyers and decisions written by judges. He doesn't understand the difference. And that's why he seems to be commenting on the way lawyers, you know, sort of use this purple prose and tell stories. But that quote is from the judge. It's from well, the judge. Well, he has several other quotes from judges yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, but let me just focus on it. Yeah, that's and he does from... mention that judges have a way of, you know, that these things turn on, you know, how the judge feels about it. Sure. More than anything. But I think what the article is about yeah. is that yeah. um, in terms of social archaeology, yeah. you know, when future generations are digging up, uh, trying to understand, uh, looking at what our culture was like, yeah. these lawsuits give a certain picture they do. of what we were thinking about, what we were worried about, what was important in, uh, yeah. you know, uh, culture, uh, you know, cultural icons, uh, etc. So it's just a different picture of life that is sorted out from the stories in these lawsuits. Right. Now, lots of us are just kind of amazed that uh, the idea that litigation is storytelling, um, right? But 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 but, uh, but but here's the difference. And I, I, first of all, you did a much better job in this fellow Tarpley hit that you're miles ahead of him. Number one, number two is uh, that the storytelling though is done by the lawyers in their briefs and complaints. When you read a judge's decision, he's not storytelling. He's the site. Well, that's entirely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but, and, and, well, but he does mention that it's the job of the lawyer to come up with his story. No, no, no. That's what's wrong. What the, the difference between if you want the quote that I read is is one that sort of exhibits. Let's a, not litigate this, Daniel. A, a tone, Move on. Move a tone on. of moral yeah. outrage. Right? You don't. How you persuade a judge to do something is not by telling him what to think. It's much more subtle than that. That's why I'm telling you we didn't write that. Okay. We litigated in a way that caused the judge, persuaded the judge to come story. to that conclusion. A good story yes. doesn't tell the listener what to think. Exactly right. Okay. Okay. All right. So in, in a way, he's right. All right. Moving right. <laughs> in no way. Moving right along yes. here. Get to the, the, the mushroom story, would you please? Well, you know, we just had mushrooms for dinner last yeah. night. Yeah. I made a rather decent... Um, chicken marsala. Rather decent, yes. It was excellent. It was super okay. tender. Um, and uh, and mushrooms are awfully good for you, but they have to be cooked. Did you know mushrooms have like almost zero right um, nutritive value? value I'm, I'm totally totally on that. I ate so many spinach salads with raw mushrooms. Oh yeah, thinking I, I was doing you've been wasting good. your time. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to quickly mention in the Ukraine, it's a mushroom bonanza. Bonanza this year. Yes. You know, even though it's a brutal year in many ways. The weather, the idea that it was kind of a dry summer followed Mm -hmm. by an unusually warm and lush and rainy fall with the frost quite late um, has resulted in a huge bounty of uh, mushrooms in the forest so that Ukrainian families are going out into the forest and collecting all these mushrooms. And they're... It's helping them support their families because just like in our country, uh, jobs have been lost. Um, uh, Income has been lost because of the pandemic. And so this is one sort of cottage industry that is providing uh, people with uh, a source of uh, support. And uh, I I think it's interesting. um, The uh, it's done in in kind of family groups and uh, there is a there's usually a designated taster. Okay. Who will taste the you know any one day's harvest to mm-hmm. make sure they're all 
okay because you know uh, bad mushrooms poisons uh, are, are, can be quite dangerous yeah, right. and they the ukrainian government has reported an increase in poisonings this year by mid-november 289 people had been poisoned 11 had died um, the other danger is that people have been collecting mushrooms near chernobyl hmm. which uh, are often radioactive and there are limitations this about is, this is a positive story about mushrooms isn't it Except that the, the, the government is having to watch out and okay. they're having to punish people. Yeah. You do not want to eat a radioactive mushroom. So okay. they, you know, it's very tempting for people to go and uh, get these mushrooms and, and try to sell them. The other fun thing is uh, finding out where the mushrooms are. And uh, in uh, historical Ukrainian mushroom etiquette, yeah. Uh, when somebody asks another person, you know, you know, where are you finding the mushrooms? You simply fib. You give several oh, ideas right? of places where they are not. Yeah. So, so this is a fun article, and um, you know, we're in Pennsylvania, which is pretty famous for commercial mushrooms. All right. But we have not been. Uh, we're tempted. We see uh, fungi all over the place in the woods here. Well, we know better now than to ask anybody where the good mushrooms well, we are. Do, well, we do. Well, yeah, but we do. Uh, have people we can ask whether they're edible. Oh, okay. The answer is usually no. Well, Dang. Well, you know they're not radioactive. So the, the uh, last story is just a one-of-a-kind thing. I mean, it's, a, it's an obituary. A fellow named David Moss uh, passed away. And it turns out David Moss, as described in the paper, was half of a one-of-a-kind quick change act. He and a woman named Danya Kasiva, who they married in 1996, they had an act in which they would change their costume very quickly. In other words, they would one would put a little, like a, a shower rod and a shower curtain over the other over five seconds and lift it back up, and they were in a completely different outfit. And the original outfit had disappeared. some of the changes are even more subtle than that. They yeah. like twirl with a, you know, yeah. a big cape. And by the time they've come full circle, they're dressed differently. And then, and then the article says that this was an act that uh, basically was received with great acclaim at things like basketball. Well, here's what they say. Some of television's biggest stages kept basketball fans nationwide nailed to their seats at halftime, uh, appeared on you know the Oprah Winfrey show, etc., 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 and uh, America's Got Talent. And you say to yourself, well, what kind of cheesy act is this? Well, if you get on YouTube and you look them up, uh, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. I don't know how they do it. It's so, beyond magic. And he came up with this as a way for them to work together. Right, because they want to be together and not yeah. have separate acts so they could spend time together. Right. So is this your way of telling me this is your latest retirement idea? <laughs> I didn't. Tamsin, I can't figure out how they did it. I, how could it be a retirement idea? I think if you keep studying the YouTubes, <laughs> there's, you know, there's no way. With your light step and your... <laughs> Wonderful uh, coordination. Well, well, this woman, this woman, there's a little a sex appeal thing going on here. Let's, you know, which, which of course you could add to the act. You're, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be the focus. But the fact of the matter is that it is impossible to decipher how they did it. They, they do mention that. Uh, That's what makes it a good act, Daniel. It's fantastic. You should look it up. They say that George Bush had them out to uh, his estate two or three times or something to perform. Just amazing stuff. Right. All right. Well, anyway, I'm carried away with that. So that's what we have. A little magic at the end of the uh, podcast. 
that wraps it up this week. All right, so we'll be out. Uh, oh, you'll be out Hanukkah shopping. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I'll be uh, dropping uh, quite a bit uh, of money in order to get the right Hanukkah gift. Okay, and uh, so uh, here we go. That's all for today, folks. All right, see you next this week. This is Tamson Green. And have you have.